Our scripture for today, we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation, and we're starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And so before we started with the very beginning of, of the book, and that talked about how this was a vision to John from Jesus Christ, and then there's a bunch of letters to different churches, um, the church of Ephesus, the church of Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea, which is the uh, famous one where... God is taught, or John is writing to the church of Laodicea where it says, like, um, you are neither hot nor cold. Um, and because you are lukewarm, and because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out. And it's always like, oh no, am I, am I lukewarm about this, God? Or am I, am I passionate? But, but then we get to this next vision in chapter four. And so that's where we're starting up. Hear these words. After this, I looked and there was a door that had been opened in heaven and the ver- first verse voice that I had heard, which sounded like a trumpet, said to me, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in a spirit-inspired trance and I saw a throne in heaven and someone was seated on, seated on the throne and the one seated there looked like Jasper and Carnelian. And surrounding the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald and 24 thrones and 24 elders seated upon them surrounded the throne. The elders were dressed in white clothing and had gold crowns on their head. And from the throne came lightning, voices, and thunder. In front of the throne were seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And something like a glass sea, like crystal, was in front of the throne. In the center by the throne were four living creatures encircling the throne. These creatures were covered with eyes on the front and on the back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a human, and the fourth was like an eagle in flight. And each of the four living creatures had six wings, and each was covered all around and on the inside with eyes. And they never rest day or night, but keep saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and always, the 24 elders fall before the one seated on the throne. They worship the one who lives forever and always. They throw down their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. It is by your will that they exist and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A few years ago, I was talking to my, my son, Dominic, at breakfast, and this was right when he started kindergarten, and he has some opinions of his own, and he asked me a question, Daddy, are we living in a movie? Are we living in a movie? Now, it is a question that's a, it's pretty good for a five-year-old to ask. Are we living in a, in a movie? My first reaction would be to say, no, obviously we're not, but then I wanted to like, respond to the curiosity and, and go in a different direction with it. I probably talked a little too much, as I sometimes do in those situations, uh, but, but it, it was a good, good question. So I mentioned how it may seem like we're in a movie, but it is important to remember that one, God is not like really far away just watching us, um, whether we're naughty or nice. And two, it's important to realize we're not in a movie because we are not the center of the story. We are not the protagonists in this film of life. And the important thing about that is that it means that the people around us are not just extras or or supporting characters in our life. Because when we think about that, if we think we are the center of the story, it is so easy to fall into that narcissistic trap. 
to think that the people around us are just there to serve us or amuse us, to give us things or help us. So I'm going to geek out just a little bit um, in a different direction, but it's, it's super relevant. We'll come back to it. So in the fifth book of George Martin's Song of Ice and Fire, there's this character named Quentin who isn't in the TV show The Game of Thrones, but he, he's just in this book. And if you've never re- read the actual stories, each chapter is divided by the character as the narrator. So there's a, a chapter for each character and different things. And when I read it the first time, I would skip over characters I didn't like. It was like, I don't like this character. I don't care what's going on with their plot. So I would just skip over it and move to the next one. But I, I, I've read them a few times, um, not counting. <laughs> and um, and my, my, the second time I came back and read A Dance for Dragons, I was really interested in this character, Quentin, that I didn't really read the first time. So Quentin is, is a brother of, of, of a princess in the southern part of this kingdom, and he thinks his destiny is to be the king. He thinks his destiny is, and that's what he's been raised to do, that's all that's a part of his life. But we meet Quentin right after the storm, where his, his party, his band of heroes, pretty much all have died. And so his best friend has died, his mentor has died, he's been in the storm and the sea, and Quentin is found in this. But he still thinks that this is what he needs to do. He needs to go and, and marry the princess and become the king. It's not what he wants to do, but he thinks that's what he needs to do. He thinks he has what's called plot armor, which if you've never heard is a, is a term often in like sci-fi or other things like that, where a character is so important to the plot they can't possibly die. Um, and so they, they think that they are immortal, like, you know, like, um, Luke Skywalker in the original Star Wars. Not the later ones, but in the original ones. They're like, you know, Luke's not really going to die because then there wouldn't be another movie. He has plot armor in that kind of sense. And so Quentin thought he did that. He had plot armor that he couldn't be killed. He thought all the things going on, all the challenges in his life were building up to this climax of him going to the princess and the princess falling in love with him and them getting married and becoming king. But it did not turn out as he had expected. She is really confused, confronted by him, and rejects him, and, and he like, goes and, and still doesn't know how to put this together with his idea of who he thinks he needs to be. He doesn't want to be king. This is not his goal in life. He'd rather just like garden and read at home. But, but his father and all these people in his life have told him over and over again that he is the center of the story. He is what is going to make the kingdom whole again. So when he's rejected... He has one last ditch effort where he, he organizes a, a, some wicked mercenaries and he tries, breaks into the castle and he breaks into the dragons. And his, his idea is that he is going to tame the dragon and prove that he deserves the princess. But it does not go well. And instead of taming the dragon, the dragon opens his mouth and Quentin is burned. Quentin is burned. My friends, we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation, how Revelation is about our identity. It's not just about the things that are happening a long time in the future. It is about who we are. What is the source of our identity and what kind of story do we think we are living? What do we think we need in our lives and what do we value in our lives? One of my teachers once said, and this is, I'm going to say this a few times because it's kind of confusing the first time you hear it, but the, the project of modernity was to produce people who believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story. 
Okay, so I'm going to go over this slowly, but I think it's, it's really, <laughs> there's a lot of words. Um, and he's a guy from, um, from Belton, and so he's like, ah, the project of modernity is like, that's how we talk, Stanley. Um, it's really funny. Um, but the project of modernity is that people, the only story people have is the one they were able to choose when they didn't have a story. The idea that you get to create your own story. You get to create your own meaning, meaning you get to create your own identity. And that purpose and meaning and history can be changed like changing a sweater or changing a hat, however we desire. My favorite illustration of the absurdity of this comes from the, the TV show The Simpsons. And Bart Simpson is having an argument with his sister Lisa. And he says, he's frustrated, so he says, well, I'm just going to be punching the air, and if you get into the way of my fists, it's your own fault. <laughs> and then Lisa says, well, I'm just going to be kicking, and if you get in the way of my feet, it's your own fault. <laughs> um, that each of them claiming to be the central figure. And that one of the consequences of this is that if each of us, if the only story that matters is the story we choose when we have no story, then each of us is the center of our own story. And there are six billion, seven billion sinners of the universe floating around out there, people who think that all of the world is, is catering to them. This afternoon, if you watch the Super Bowl, there's going to be a lot of commercials about how awesome you are, but your life would be more awesome if you buy this thing. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. You are great. Everything is great about you, except for you're lacking this one thing that we can give you if you give us money. Like, that is... That is what is going to be offered to you, this idea that you are the center of the universe. It's important, though, for Christians to realize that this is a false, this is a lie. This is a lie to, to promote a certain kind of, of consumption and a certain kind of identity that is very different from what is offered in Jesus. It's very similar, though, to the narratives of, of the Roman Empire that John was writing against. The Roman, Romans swept across the ancient world and claimed each story for their own. They, when they invaded Israel and they, they conquered the temple, they took the menorah back from the temple, the giant menorah, and placed it in Rome, claiming the Jewish story for their own. That's one of the ways that the Roman Empire was able to last for so long, was the way that it claimed particular stories and peoples as its own. It didn't say you now have to do all the things we tell you, but actually what you're doing is what, who we are as well. So by claiming that, they also offered and, and divided the people into citizens of Rome and, or, or slaves. And citizens of Rome had these privileges. They could, they could appeal to the emperor. They had free bread. They didn't have to worry about being hungry. There was a way that they could, they could feel like, okay, I guess I can buy this, this Roman thing. I'll follow this story, even though it's not mine, because I get this benefit out of it. People could be content with that story. People can be content with the stories we tell ourselves, the claims we make about ourselves, that we are the ultimate arbiters of our own truth and reality, and that the only story we have is the one we choose for ourselves. But ultimately, it is false. It is not life-giving. And we see it falling apart in the book of Revelation. We see the lie falling apart when we see who really sits upon the throne. Because it is not someone who Napoleon himself 
to power. It's not someone who picked themselves up by their bootstraps and is suddenly in the throne of heaven. It is instead the lamb that was slain. The the sacrifice offered to us is the ruler of all creation. The one who sits upon the throne is not the emperor of Rome with illusions of grandeur. It is Jesus Christ. One scholar of of Revelation said the creator and the lamb are the theological center of the book of Revelation. The throne vision in chapter 4 puts them at the heart of the created order. This vision of what it means to worship. We hear the song, holy, holy, holy are your Lord God Almighty. We're going to say these words in a few minutes during communion. We hear these words at Christmas with the angels speak to the shepherds. Holy, holy, holy. There are a lot of other symbols going on here. I, tried, I read the whole chapter four to kind of get a sense of some of the symbolic nature. There's thrones and rainbows and gems of jasper and emerald. There are 24 thrones and 24 elders. They're flaming torches. There's symbols upon symbols upon symbols. There's four creatures with different animal parts going on that reflect back to Ezekiel chapter one. And it is, again, symbol upon symbol upon symbol. It is a maximalist view of what life with God would look like. One image cannot contain the presence of God. This is what, it, what is so powerful sometimes about Scripture is that like, sometimes we would think, like, gosh, it'd be really easy, God, if you just gave us, no, what's heaven going to be like? And we just have one image, and that would be fine. But, but one image cannot contain it. Revelation offers us images upon images and this is what the whole, the, the symbolic structure, all that vividness of imagery throughout the book of Revelation, not just in chapter four, but throughout that vividness of imagery is to show us how magnificent the presence of God is. And the elders on the throne show us that there is a place for us with God. There's a place for us with God. And even more, there's a place for us now with God where we can sing to God. This is why we share the table together. This is why we sing with the heavenly hosts, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. We sing with the elders in heaven. We're given space to sing. We're given space in the drama of creation history. We are contingent beings in a broken world. And yet, we matter to God. You matter to God. Not just in your future, but right now. And what is so important for us to remember is that the story of Revelation shows us a spoiler alert about all of creation history. Because at the end of the day, we know who is going to win. We know who has already won. When we share in communion, it seems like a little thing. It seems even smaller when we have these individual containers. It is such a little thing. It's a little wafer, a little bit of juice. And yet God is doing something great here. Like the mustard seed in the gospel of Mark, it will grow to be enormous. The kingdom of heaven is here at this table and it will grow. Even though it can look insignificant and even though sometimes it's covered in plastic, that does not dictate what is going to be. Even when you 
feel insignificant and you're covered in plastic or, or polyester or something like that. Um, that doesn't dictate who you are going to be, even if you don't feel like you matter in this world or you don't matter to yourself. That does not define who you are. You are a part of a bigger story. The book of Revelation from the beginning of end to the end does not hide Christ's victory. It is never in doubt. No matter which page or verse you are on, there is not a moment where it seems like the forces of wickedness are going to prevail. They are ultimately impotent compared to the power of God in Jesus Christ. The drama of faith is not found in the destination, but in our journey. We all know where we are going to end up, not what it is going to look like to get there. For that, we are given images upon images upon images. We have glimpses to see what the presence of God is like. Because the drama is not found in the future, but in our present and how we are going to take our understanding of our future with God and live our life now. How are you going to live a life of hope now? For about the last 1,600 years, there's been some ways of of reading Revelation that haven't centered on this us-or-them dichotomy that's so often brought to the book. Instead, it looks at the, the heart of the conflict within Revelation. It's not between us and them, those insiders and outside, but inside the human heart. The conflict inside the human heart. Is our heart set towards Babylon or towards the one who sits upon the throne? Who are you seeking in your life? Not thinking about the other people, not thinking about those people who need to fix that thing in their life and do the thing, other thing. Who who are you seeking? This is not a way to get out of responsibility, but actually puts more responsibility on us. Let us live a heavenly life now, not wait around for tomorrow. Let us accept Jesus now, not wait around for tomorrow. Let's offer mercy now and not wait around for tomorrow tomorrow. Let's seek mercy now and not wait around for tomorrow. Let us live a life of holiness. Holiness is one of those, those words that can seem, seem strange in, in regular talk. Oh, she's a little bit holier than thou. That's not what's going on in the Bible. Holiness really just means like set apart. What is set apart? Like right now, I am set apart from the congregation because I'm not, I'm standing up here. You guys are sitting. There's a, a, a distance, but it's what do you keep apart from other things in your life? How do you keep yourself apart? Christ includes us in this story of redemption. So let us participate fully. Let us not stand on the sidelines of a life we could be lived, a life we are offered this day. Let us jump in. Let's jump in with our prayers. Let us jump in with life with God, with our prayers, knowing that God wants to have conversation with us. God desires to be with you. Let's jump in with our presence, knowing that we can be present for people in a new way because of who God is for us. With being present to fulfill the commitments in our life. With being unafraid to make new commitments because we don't need to be afraid because God is with us. God is looking out for us. Let us jump in with our gifts, with our spiritual gifts that God has given us, as well as the gift of generosity, the gift of giving financially to what matters in this life, the gift of not having to build up storehouses of our stuff, 
so that, so that, because we know that that is not going to last so that we can build up our storehouses in heaven. Let us jump in with our service, with our willingness to serve others for God. Let us jump in with our willingness to receive service from others, peace from others. Let us jump in with our witness, with our willingness to point to the one who sits on the throne. Not the conqueror, not the president, not the CEO, not the government, governor, not any one of those folks. Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain, who has won the victory, who has defeated death, who has offered his life for you, that you can live fully and hopefully now and not wait around until tomorrow. Now that we together can gather and sing holy, 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 and that this little mustard seed or this little piece of bread and this little bit of juice can grow into a transformed and holy life of faith. And even when we feel insignificant or overlooked, that we remember that God is with us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for revealing your love in the life of Jesus and the resurrection love of our future with God offered to us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen.